0: Women of War is written and recorded on Wurundjeri land. We acknowledge that we live and work here on stolen, unceded land. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This episode contains references to genocide, racism, especially in the context of the White Australia policy, domestic violence, alcoholism, discussion of suicide and people being eaten by crocodiles. It may not be suitable for all listeners or any pirate captains named Hook. All efforts have been made to ensure the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. However, with the nature of historical research, there may be mistakes or inconsistencies. The views presented herein are also not reflective of our employers.
1: The women of hut and tent and camp are in Mary Gilmore's ken, for she knows the lives of the Bushmen's wives, as Lawson knew the men. The digger's bride from the other side finds many a line to quote, and many a homesick heart is cheered by the strength of a word she wrote. Jim Graham. Hi, I am Nicola. I am a teacher and I'm a historian and I'm on holiday, so I'm obviously
0: getting sick, but it's not COVID, which is nice. (laughs) And I'm Hannah. I am a historian who researches women's politics in the middle of the 20th century. Um, Are you sure it was the middle?
1: Yeah. The 50s. The 50s. The 50s, not the 40s.
0: All right. That's the middle. (laughs) (laughs) My research got mansplained the other day, apparently. Um... And Woman, that's, yeah. that's me. That's me done. That's Go. you done. And yeah. you're also a
1: well-rounded, fascinating individual. Oh, but right me. now, we're going to keep it to this. And Woman Jacket A Women of War, a podcast about women and how they interacted and engaged with the wars of their time. Today, we are going to be talking about an Australian female poet and pinko. Few names hold as much literary meaning as Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson in Australia. He of the Waltz Matilda. And Hannah, name a Henry Lawson poem slash story. The driver's wife. Yeah which I still haven't seen, but looked really intense. Mum went and saw it and didn't know what it was, and she was like, I didn't like it very much. (laughs) I
0: do not care about it at all. But technically, I do
1: have a minor in literature. (laughs) I know. Uh, I've always liked what I've read of Henry Lawson, but I haven't read much. He was
0: a very sad man, as we will discover today. Anyway, um, on that point, why are we talking about men again in our podcast, which you originally pitched to me as women? It could be worse. So
1: we could be centering one of Mary Gilmore's most famous descendants.
0: So Mary Gilmore... Has a famous face. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're Australian or you've spent a lot of time in Australia and dealt with our money. Or you've become a citizen recently. Hi, Bob. You probably know her face uh, because Mary Cameron, as she was born. You can say that bit if you want. It was on the $10 note. She's so. on, She still is on the $10 note. <laughs> I skipped ahead yeah. and joined my lines. But anyway, she's on the blue one. And in addition to being the lady on the $10 note,
1: she was also a noted poet who wrote one of Australia's most famous wartime poems.
0: World War II poems, among others.
1: So the World War I poets are more well-known and tend to linger in the imagination more than the poets of World War II, generally. But in Australia, where we have a really odd politically motivated obsession with certain <laughs> elements of World War I, we don't give a shit about Australian war poets. I also do not. It is more of a British thing mm. that all the famous war poets are of Britain. In the average Australian's mind, our understanding, i including myself in this, yeah. our understanding of poetry starts with Waltzing Matilda by Banjo Patterson, and it ends with I Love a Sunburnt Country by Dorothea McKellar. Um, Hannah, what about you? You have a minor in literature. Uh, I also did CJ Dennis. Oh, what a sentimental bloke he was. Yeah.
0: Um, in... In high school, mm. and I've been to a house in the Dandinongs. It's a little tea room, it's very cute. And it's banjo, Patterson. It was like one of. Was it Rose Cottage? I don't know. It had oh. lovely scones, and they didn't have F POS even last year. So it was very adorable. Um, and it was like a retreat for poets. It
1: might have been Rose Cottage, because that's where Catherine Susanna Pritchard is. I feel like
0: it might have been, because yeah. I think Catherine I don't know. I can't believe you went there without me. We were, I was just driving and found it. Oh, okay. It was not an intentional trip. I thought you were
1: like, yeah, time yeah. to go to Rose I was like, Cottage. I'm driving in the Dandy
0: Dogs. I'm like, I want lunch. That looks good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh anyway. So today is a learning experience for everybody. <laughs> we are going to focus, in some ways, on four wars today. That's
0: a lot of wars. That's a lot of that's wars. Lot of wars. Which Gilmore published
1: through... I'd say all four, but more three. Mm-hmm. So she starts off with the Frontier Wars, mm-hmm. the um, the war for back lack of a better term between um sett- white settlers of Australia versus indigenous inhabitants. Then World's Wars One and Two, the later of which saw her most famous poem, and then we have the Cold War, a clash between socialist idealists and imperials, which you know. I'm going to do that one again. And then the Cold War, sort of the clash between socialist idealists and the imperial society that gave way to a capitalist one. So there's four wars. That's a lot of wars. That's a lot of wars. So technically we're doing, even if we don't do much woman for the start of this play, we're doing a lot of war. So
0: we've got like half the time We've hit the purview. We're we're doing good. All right. Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I request? Can we start with communism?
1: If you would like to start with communism, because yeah, your thesis is on communism,
0: so that's good. It is. Oh no, now this is a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> now no. I have to be an expert. I don't so, want to be an would expert. Would you
1: like to give us like a brief overview of communism in Australia? Uh,
0: well, sell it to me in like 30 seconds. The Australian Communist Party started was founded around 1920. By Catherine Zuzana Pritchard. After the, the Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't do massively until World War II was its peak. Um, that's when they got really big. Lots and lots and lots of people came in, uh, especially after after the Soviet Union joined the Allies in World War II. Before that, it was a bit iffy if you're a communist. Those bloody com. <laughs>
1: oh, wait. Oh, my goodness. No, we're on their side. Holy yes, shit. It was very much yeah. like, oh,
0: no, we're the good guys. <laughs> uh, and then they rapidly lost membership after World War II mm-hmm. and were very much maligned during the 50s and 60s. 70s? 70s, they kind of... The rest of the 20th century is just a slow decline yeah. <laughs> of, of popularity, membership, influence. And then their publications
1: as well, most mm. of which don't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And so they're, they're pretty small today. Cool.
1: So, yeah. And also, Hugo Throssell's wife, Catherine Susanna Pritchard, mm-hmm. was a key founding member of the Australian Communist was, Party and she- had a bust of Stalin in her guest room, which tells you all you need to know about a 1960s communist, yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. in Australia. Yeah. So, um we this is a pretty general look at Mary Gilmore's life because she's of four wars. I I started off wanting to focus on the World War Two stuff because um that's where her most famous poem is from. But when I and then I was like, Oh my god, this woman is such a big communist. Why is she on our money? Not in the sense of why is this woman on our money? But but like, like for
0: a very anti communist society for most of its history. Yeah, really. and it, there was As a, a recent decision
1: yeah. post the collapse
0: of the Soviet Union. Why
1: have they put this woman on the mm, money? That
0: that is odd, as with many Aussies of that era and today. Mary Cameron was born to immigrant parents. Her mum's family had come from County Armour in Ireland, and her dad had come from Scotland. She was born in mid-August 1865 on Mulwari country, or the city of Goulburn, which Australians know as a place where Goulburn Valley and S.P.C. fruit comes from.
1: One of my earliest memories is like some rowers from the Olympics doing an ad for SPC. I love that That's ad. odd early memory. They were called, like, the Awesome Foursome, but the or was, like, O-A-R. Uh-huh. Like, Awesome Foursome. I looked yep. it up.
0: It's, like, a thing. Hang on. No, let's not go okay. there. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I believe you. Thank you. The Awesome Foursome. So, Goulburn is considered regional rural now. Uh, so, imagine the place in the 1860s. They lived in various rural areas around New South Wales, mostly on Wiradjuri country around Wagga Wagga, where Mary spent her time living with her grandparents while her dad moved the family around. Due to them moving around a lot, Mary didn't spend a lot of time in regular schooling, but she did pick up things quickly. She
1: was a smart cookie. Um, Mary's dad was an interesting figure. Um, He was originally from Scotland and he was a farmer, but unusually for a white settler during this period, he had a really interesting... Deep relationship with the local Wiradjuri people. He understood that the Wiradjuri didn't just have a great connection to the land, but also understood the maintenance and care the land needed in order to provide for people to survive on it. So he didn't just look at the carefully managed land
0: and go, hmm, it yeah. must be perfect. This guy's made, like Bruce Gavages'
1: great 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 granddad, basically. Um, and because the Wiradjuri understood that he respected them, they also shared their knowledge and the seasonal movements of animals and the behaviour of water and plants. And Donald learned this, and he also shared it with Mary, or I'm forced to assume that um, the Wiradjuri also shared it with mm-hmm. Mary. And Mary would later become a key repository of knowledge about Indigenous Wagga Wagga and how European interference had really negatively affected Aboriginal food supplies and water access as they were pushed up their land. So she's already coming from a very unusual family, even if it's like kind of a cliché idea of two immigrant parents mm-hmm. coming from Britain, Ireland, Scotland.
0: So Mary's mum, Mary Anne may have also supplemented Mary's education as she herself would later write for, among other things, the Daily Telegraph. Writing was also a common in Mary Ann's family. One of her sisters married the then-famous journalist, Charles White, so we can assume that Mary, the OG Mary, our Mary, the Mary of this episode, may also have had interactions with him. She was clearly an intelligent young woman, as in 1877, when she was around 12, She started as both a student and trainee teacher at various schools, including at Cootamundra and Yerong Creek, both on Wiradjuri country, and it was there that she passed her teacher's exam in 1877.
1: Speaking of other famous people from Cootamundra, that is uh, where Donald Bradman comes from, who is not on any of our money, which is probably a good thing.
0: Kind of surprising, though.
1: Yeah, actually, like, give us a Bradman. Ooh, I can see that. Mm. 20 Bradmans. Twenty Bradman, who's on the... It's like a pastor on the $20, I I've been looking at this all week. Anyway. Um, I don't pay enough attention to our money, as most people don't, which is why we're doing this episode. Yeah. So these and her early childhood experiences would provide inspiration for her later poetry that focused on the rural life of average Australians. Mary worked at a school in Illawarra first, and then she moved to a school near Broken Hill for two years. Broken Hill is the land of the Wiradjuri people. In 1890, she was transferred to Neutral Bay Public School on Gadigal country, or the lower north shore of Sydney. Neutral Bay at this point was the artistic left-wing area of Sydney, whereas now it's presumably full of overpriced houses or expensive rentals full of black mould.
0: And bad coffee.
1: And terrible coffee.
0: It was around this point that Mary probably met a near-deaf young man who, despite the challenges of having a disability during the 1890s, strived to be well-educated and was fast becoming one of Australia's best-known poets. That man, a man from Snowy River, who waltzed his Matilda all over, who overflowed into the lower North Shore, Henry Lawson. (laughs) I had fun.
1: (laughs) Due to an early life ear... Oh, that's not funny. Due to an early life ear infection, Lawson was almost deaf. And because there were very few provisions for people like him in mainstream Australian schools, all he could really do was sit in the classroom and read. Already by this point, he had begun to depend on alcohol to self-medicate what will become a severe set of mental illnesses. However... In the 1890s his style was also on the rise. His works had already been published by the Bulletin in 1887, the Bulletin being the main left-wing socialist sort of workers' rights paper for Australia. Mm-hmm. It was also insanely racist. Mm-hmm. It was it's one of those like things where it's like it's really left-wing in terms of labor rights and incredibly right-wing and disgusting in terms of racial equality.
0: Which is not uncommon in not, this period or even in, this in, in period. even
1: now. Yeah. 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 Um, so, by 1887, Lawson was already being published by the Bulletin, and Mary and Henry became close friends, and probably also began a romantic relationship. Mary claimed that they'd been engaged, but few others corroborate this, but, like, why would she lie? Because she
0: never had any trouble speaking her mind about other stuff. And it's like, it's not like she was, like, someone unknown trying to be like, I banged the famous dude? Like. But, like, why would she lie? I could could see it if it was, like, a... Trying to get some attention because you don't have any of your own and you want it like if you're oh, an attention seeker. Yeah. But like she is also doing her own poetry and thriving. Yeah. So she doesn't have that reason to yeah make the claim. And
1: like later in life, you wouldn't brag about being married to Henry Lawson yeah. or nearly being because of what I'm about to say. This um, it's probably a good thing she never married him because he was physically abusive to her late his later wife and he she actually ended up obtaining a divorce his mm, later wife. Damn. Um, they never married but they were very close until at least Federation came about. 1901. 1901. Yeah, sorry, I should have said um, So Lawson was also often travelling to write, um, and he was on the outs of ter- in terms of his mental health, and he was really unreliable and often drunk, so maybe this also led to a breakdown in the relationship.
0: One must also assume that Mary's time living in North Shore and in contact with Lawson, whose later wife was the daughter of a prominent socialist, assisted in her radicalisation. In 1891, Mary again got transferred to a different school, this one in Stanmore, in the outer suburbs of Sydney, which is still on the land of the Gadigal people. Though her role as a teacher limited her political activism, Mary did the best she could with the limits she had, in the same way that Nicola pronounces Liberal Party whenever she's on TV. Thank you. Mary was even elected as
1: one of the first executives to the Australian Workers' Union under the name of her brother, John. Probably. Now, the AWU was probably the biggest union in Australia, and so you'll understand this is a big deal and a big platform and not allowed if you're a teacher in a public <laughs> school, which is probably why she um, went under her brother's
0: name. I imagine gender probably had a part in that. And it as gender well. too, yeah. yeah.
1: So she's support they probably didn't mind the women, it was women of colour they had a problem with. She yeah. su- uh, Communists I know it's not uh,
0: communists but communists true, not true. so great with
1: gender. It's funny that. While Mary is still working as a public school teacher and being an executive to the Australian Workers' Union, the AWU, she was also supporting these massive strikes by maritime workers and shearers. So in 1890, maritime workers went on strike over pay and conditions, and this was actually the largest strike in Australian history. It spread from Victorian dock workers to coal miners in New South Wales and to New Zealand. Damn it, dump the ditch. I know, right? We used to be so close. What happened? Well, we all know what happened. But what happened? (laughs) Who refused to supply coal for non-union vessels. The 1891 Queensland Shearer's Strike began over separate issues, but it merged with the wider maritime coal strike. And it's even more impressive because... Australia's not a nation by this point. It is just still separate mm. colonies. Separate
0: colonies. So which speaks to the history of Australia as a kind of a once progressive, in many areas, kind of nation. Mm. The home of the secret ballot, compulsory voting by the nineteen twenties, and an early adopter of female suffrage, like South Australia was the first place in the world to give women the right to vote. And then New the Zealand's women. like, Get in there, bro Some women, anyway. Of course, the upcoming Federation of Australia in 1901 would see the passage of Australia's first act of parliament, the White Australia Policy. And racism was alive and well in the Australian and New Zealand Union movements. So it's, it's a land of situations and contrasts.
1: But it wasn't left enough for Mary. So by the mid-1890s, ni- not the 1980s, <laughs> by the mid-1890s, the New Australia Movement had taken off. What was the new Australian movement? Can I guess? Yes, you may. Was it a movement to create a new Australia? You might be right there, huh? (laughs) Luckily, there wasn't a new New Zealand movement. (laughs) Alright, so first, we have to meet William Lane, who was born in Bristol, which again very Mm -hmm. worker-heavy unionist city. It's actually still, like, very red compared to the rest of, like, the cities in the UK. It's very
0: factory-based, you know, Mm. No, but
1: even now, like, it's, like, surrounded by, like, conservative, like, MVs, (laughs) and it's just Bristol, like, big red dot in the middle. Um, And then William emigrated to Australia with his family. Lane was key in the 1889 formation of the Australian Labor Federation, and he worked as a journalist covering the strikes that we just talked about. He was a committed communist and rapacious racist. Beautiful and obliteration. He, thank you. And inspired by similar movements in the USA, he wished to create a white communist utopia in some unsettled wildland. So he settled on a 450,000 hectare plot in Paraguay.
0: Mm.
1: What are you doing, William? What are you doing? And it's about, I looked it up, it's about 5,000 to 8,000 kilometers from where Jonestown would eventually be. Um, The first ship to New Australia set sail in mid-1893 and set up a whites-only communist collectivist nightmare, but granted, there wasn't a mass murder at the end of it.
0: Which is, the bar is low if that's what you're drudging on. Mm, uh, Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Um, But there were, obviously, because this
1: is the left, very quickly splits between the communists and try not to be too shocked, Mm -hmm. and the New Australia colony divided in two, predating any calls for Western Australia to leave the Commonwealth by six years.
0: So Mary was key in fundraising for the New Australia Colony, and indeed in late 1895 she said, fuck you, to her bosses at the school, and set sail from Sydney to New Australia. She arrived in Paraguay in January 1896. At some point she met a man named William Alexander Gilmore, and called him, quote, the handsomest man in the New Australia Colony, end quote. And I've never seen a picture of him, but I kind of feel like it would have been <laughs> slim Pickings. <laughs> Like, it's not like you've got a lot of options in the new Australia colony at this point.
1: Hmm. Do I want the racist communists or the communist racists? So... Well, I'm pretty racist too, so...
0: <laughs> anyway, it probably doesn't surprise you to find out that they married the following year in May. And in August 1898, Mary gave birth to their only child. Let me do the maths real quick here. It's fine. I checked. Okay. The child was also named William. Handily, he also had some weird middle names, which probably made him very easy to look up in the World War II military records. Spoilers? He's not there. That's the thing. Oh, intriguing. But
1: the Gilmores weren't enjoying New Australia. I wonder why? <laughs> not only had the communist utopia schismed and split into two, it was a teetotal nightmare, and we have to assume the food was terrible because British people can't cook. Mm-hmm. In 1899, with a one-year-old son, the Gilmores quit. After a quick spell in South Patagonia, where Mary worked as a teacher while her husband worked as a shearer, the Gilmores headed to England and eventually returned to Old Australia in July <laughs> 1902. They had left the colony in New South Wales and returned to the Commonwealth of Australia. There's probably a metaphor there.
0: There probably is, but I, I can't to think about it. Yeah. They may have returned because, if this hasn't already been implied, though Mary had a good deal of respect for Aboriginal people in Australia, she was also horrendously racist towards any other races who weren't white Australians, and this is very apparent in her public writings. So perhaps Mary and her husband saw the white Australia policy and were all too excited to just get back in that. Looks like mm. a fun time. Also, I just, you know, there was that weird white South African immigration thing. They were we had a few actually years from ago. Zimbabwe. What?
1: That was from Zimbabwe, not South Africa, wasn't
0: it? No. Oh, I'm thinking David Prokock. No, Sorry. no, I'm looking. I'm thinking of Dutton. These weird, like, the persecuted South African, white South African You know what, South Africans,
1: you earned your persecution, thank you. (laughs) Anyway, point is, we haven't changed. Point is, we haven't changed, and she truly is Scott Morrison's great, great aunt in that regard. Hi, kids. Um, Upon their return to Australia, Mary longed to hang around in the metropolitan artistic world of Sydney, but William, her husband, had family in Western Victoria on Conagotutung... Oh, no, I'm so sorry on conagulwutung Gunjij country, or Strathdownie, and so they went out to a place that's still rural today, so it was more or less the moon <laughs> in 1902. They did get mail there, though, and this was how Mary got her first works published in the Bulletin. She was corresponding with Alfred George Stevens, the editor of the Bulletin, and he saw her work shared on his editorial page on October the 3rd, 1903. In
0: 1907, the family moved to the nearby town of Casterton, so their son could attend school. Though they'd left New Australia, Mary was still highly connected with the communist community in Australia. Mary also campaigned for the local Labor member in 1906 and 1910.
1: Which was much more radical than it would be today mm-hmm. because I think by then they'd actually seen the first Labor Prime Minister of a nation in the world, and that was in Australia, and that was yep. Chris Watson, who was born in Chile, which is kind of funny you when go. you think about it. There you it. go.
0: Mary also read The Australian Worker. In 1908, Mary wrote to the editor, Hector Le saying there should be a women's page for women communists to read in The Australian Worker. LeMond wrote back saying, you should do it, and Mary did. <laughs> and she continued work as the women's editor for the next 23 years. Perhaps having the kid at school had given Mary more free time because in 1910 she had her first book published, Married and Other Verses. It was said to be, quote, probably, sort of, quote, good. End quote. <laughs> Mary's,
1: <laughs> Mary's writing prowess led to greater heights of success. In 1912, she and her son moved back to Gadigal country while her husband headed up north to Queensland, farming on lands of the Mitakuti, Kalkadoon, and Pitta Pitta people. William and Mary didn't exactly split and always remained fond of each other in their letters. So they kind of had, like, big Alexandra Sokolovskaya and Leon Trotsky energy, at least before the deaths of their daughters. Trotsky and Alexandra's daughters. Yep. not their daughters. They didn't have any daughters. They didn't have any they daughters. They had, yeah. had William
0: oh. huh? yeah. In Sydney, Mary's literary career exploded. She was a constant feature of the Sydney Morning Herald, writing about intensely diverse topics but also sledging the concept of diversity within Australia. She used her platform to advocate for Indigenous Australians. Point for Mary. Um, the Sydney Morning Herald also did advertise for Mary in 1910, touting her as a poet who got straight to the hearts of her readers, quote, if they are women, end quote. Though the Sydney Morning Herald talks down to Gilmore's work, even in 1910, as she focuses on women's issues, we can see that they. Issues of women's labour. So she's very much got that labour movement thing going. Yeah. And now you get to read a poem. Me? Yeah, it's you. Oh, okay. It's singing in and out and feeling full of grace, here and there, up and down, and round about the place. It's rolling up your sleeves and whitening up the hearth and scrubbing out the floors and sweeping down the path. It's baking tarts and pies and shining up the knives and feeling if some day, and as if some days was worth a thousand lives. It's watching out the door, and watching by the gate, and watching down the road, and wondering why he's late, and feeling anxious-like, for fear there's something wrong, and wondering why he kept, and why he takes so long. So that's not the whole poem. It's just an excerpt. Like it. Well, the man actually doesn't get home during the poem, and it ends with the woman feeling proud of her labour as opposed to how her husband reacts to it. So perhaps this is also about sneaking these ideas into poetry under the noses of the male-dominated publishing industry.
1: I'm also thinking about like the idea of like wonder- worrying why he's late. It's also like his working conditions were so unsafe back then. That could also be part of it. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, was, I went to adultery. You always go to adultery, though. Constantly. It's terrible. <laughs>
1: I hope you never get married. It's awful. <laughs> Alright, and like, let's be real though, she, Mary Gilmore wouldn't be the first radical woman on the left or the right to live a non-traditional life, but expect other women to
0: stay in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, and then came the war. And then came the war. But actually no, before that, Mary also helped save the Bulletin from bankruptcy. And then came the war. So, thankfully, Mary's own son, William, was too young to enlist, and it doesn't look like her
1: husband, William, enlisted <laughs> either, because once again, Australia did not have conscription. Just like South Africa. a hotly oh.
0: debated topic, though, and if you want to learn more, head down to the exhibition at the Old Treasury Building in M- Melbourne.
1: Not Melbourne, Florida. Melbourne, Australia.
0: <laughs> um,
1: which does actually make Mira kind of unusual, but maybe her brother's enlisted. I forgot to check. Also, Gilmore is an unfortunately common name, and I'm very mm. lazy when it comes to the record search function sometimes. As we have discussed in previous episodes, World War I shook the very foundations of Australian society. A country of 5 million saw 300,000 of their men depart, and 60,000 of those men died overseas. From numbers alone, we know that Mary would have known men who enlisted in the AIF, or perhaps even working women who signed up as nurses. She herself was greatly affected by the war and seems to have been aware of the carnage being wrought on both the men in the trenches and on the land itself. In 1916, the Sydney Morning Herald published her poem, In Hospital, which I'm going to read now. In Hospital by Mary Gilmore, 1916. Sleep and forget, be at peace and rest, the ward is white and the day is still. Let go the sound of the shrapnel hail, hear but the sound of the innocent quail. Soft and sweet as an old refrain in the distant fields of France. Sleep and forget, trench life is gone with its slime and mud and its drenching chill. Think only you soldier of fresh green grass Where buttercups bend as the light winds pass There where the world grew young again In the far-off fields of France Sleep and forget, oh quiet and warm The sun shines over the distant hill Dream, dream of a drowsy flail And the far-off clack of a slow-set sail Dream thou and forget thy pain In the blossoming fields of France Doesn't rhyme at the end You sound like my dad (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I actually kind of like that one because, like, when you get the male perspective of, in the hospital, it's yeah. very different because these men were there, like Sassoon and o- Owen and stuff. And um, but this one is more about this mixing that iconography that McCrae would later use of the poppies blowing mm. row on row. But in here, it's it is a sign of healing as opposed to for him, it's a
0: sign of forgetting. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not criticizing. I was just like, I know it just feels it doesn't like rhyme. It. at the, Yeah, because you think it will. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because the other lines rhyme, and I was like, it doesn't yeah. rhyme. By 1916, we know that the news and realities of the war had come back to Australian society. And thanks to her contacts in the union and labour movement, Mary would have had access to many, many men who had seen combat. She and some of her fellow poets also contributed to the Anzac Memorial, which we think later maybe became titled the Anzac Book. A book of images and recollections of life on Gallipoli, in addition to some extra poems contributed by Gilmore and other poets, including Dorothea Mackellar.
1: She yep. loves the sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, of rugged mountain ranges, and drought and flooding rains. She loves the far horizon. She loves the in jealousy, beauty <laughs> out the Mary published
0: of an entire book of poems, *The Passionate Heart*, reflecting on the Great War, working through the horror of what she and the nation had experienced. No word on what she thought of Chinese Aussie Anzacs, including William Singh, one of the greatest snipers on Gallipoli, or Caleb and Sidney Shang, brothers who served together. Royalties from the passionate heart went to soldiers blinded by the war, which was good because none of the Australian War Memorials did anything for those who lost their sight, and you can really tell that Nicola wrote this paragraph. Moving on! (laughs) During this time, Mary continued writing for various newspapers. In 1922, Mary published her first book of essays, Hound of the Road, And in 1925, she put out what was her third poetry text, The Tilted Cart, in which she also included historical notes of interest on Australia's colonial history, specifically the pioneers who worked in rural areas. This in many ways may explain her focus on the white Australia policy, linking back to an imagined past when Australia was naught but full of white farmers and Aboriginal people living in harmony. That said. We know now that even the very early years of Australian colonization saw non-white people present, and that there were at least 10 black people on the First Fleet, which was the first bunch of ships to bring British people to the lands of the Gadigal people. Unfortunately, they brought me. Yeah, that was a mistake. It was a mistake. They I sh- know, right. should have sent them back. There was
1: a lot of interesting dialogue, because they came up with a documentary on SBS about it a few months ago, about like the first Africans on the First Fleet. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of people of color going, is this just like trying to bring... People of color into the imperial settler mindset mm. of like, oh, we've done all the great things that Britain and stuff. It's like not the great thing, or is it
0: sort of like a you did bad too, and you can't complain about slavery? Maybe, but who knows? It's a very complicated. It's very complicated. Topic. complicated. I was
1: like, I'll oh, pick this lady. She's not complicated. She wrote a nice poem. <laughs> she wrote a oh, lovely poem. No, oh no, she's, she's, she's a like white nationalist. <laughs> Mary Gilmore, super racist. <laughs> Um, That's it. Mary's prolific output is made more impressive by the fact she had begun suffering from hypertension and had been yeah. hospitalised in 19. high blood pressure, 1920. Between 1921 and 1924, she spent time away from the pressures of Sydney, which I always like to do. I actually think this could have also been exacerbated by Henry Lawson's death in 1921, but I am a romantic. Mm. And in
0: 1928, she became a founder of the Fellowship of Australian Writers. So let's take a break now to talk about Mary's long-standing support for Indigenous Australians, counter to the prevailing views in most of Australia at the time. So Mary's childhood on Waradjury land and what we call Wagga Wagga, as well as her dad's connections with the Rogery, mean that most of her reminiscences about Wagga actually give modern historians great insight into both the colonial history of Wagga and what colonisation did to the Waradjury, and also what knowledge was lost. I feel
1: like we're accidentally going to say "war on" instead of "war I know. <laughs> So please forgive us if we do that. So her advocacy for Indigenous people continued on throughout her life. And I'm not saying this is like a perfectly quality thing. She's mm. often like, the Aboriginals can do this. And it's like... It's mm. very, like,
0: this period is very peak, almost white saviour kind of period. Yep. For especially a lot of white women, like this kind of white women doing a whole lot of I'm gonna save the poor, helpless Aboriginal person. She doesn't get quite that bad, and it's, it's interesting. It's what sort of she like said. you've you've got the right idea, kind of, but you the vibes off. Yeah, the vibes like it's coming from a kind of a good place, but it's also coming from a very colonial mindset. And
1: sometimes the most evil things that have ever been done have come from a place of what they thought was kindness. Yeah, yeah. So in 1935, she gave a speech on Aboriginal people, which was reported on in the Sydney Morning Herald. She declared that quote the blacks had been cruelly harassed end quote which to be fair, they had been. It's not wrong. So I'm going to like read out the article from the November edition of the Sydney Morning Herald. So basically, it said this. Sort of quote. The first white people in Australia who were unused to the country lived only by the aid of the blacks when they had went from the towns, she said. They had to depend on them to find water and edible shrubs, and their lives were often saved by the herb knowledge of the blacks. No white man in the bush had added any knowledge to the blacks' bush life so that their intelligence, under natural conditions, could not have been so deficient. Quote, Terrified people lose their capacity, end quote, added Mrs. Gilmore. Quote, and we know that the natives were terrorised, browbeaten, massacred, and starved, end quote. And dot, dot, dot. Mary then later on went to say, Their myths, religion, and folklore, she continued, were the equal of the myths of Greece. That might sound a frightful heresy, but it had to be remembered that the myths of Greece in their original form were as simple as those of the blacks, Mm. and 2,000 years of world poetry, prose, painting, sculpture, and other literary allusions had been added to the original Greek stories. The native philosophy was summed up by a chief who told her that property was a tie, that no man was free when he owned anything, for he was then the servant of that property. Furthermore, possessions bred envy." So, again, not great, Mm. but for the time... An interesting take. And the idea hmm. of comparing Indigenous myths, and of course we shouldn't be speaking so generally because every nation group has a different set of yes. myths.
0: But in this time they but, were like, there is one Aboriginal culture. Yeah.
1: But to compare them to the Greeks, which many still today like hold as the bastion, the pinnacle of Western yeah. society, I think it's actually pretty interesting. Like it is. Like
0: it's a—it's pretty bold. Hannah went on a time. face
1: journey while I was reading that, that's all. <laughs> Like, I'm not saying it's amazing. Like, you said this today, you get beaten up and you deserve it. But it's interesting. It was like,
0: oh, I just, when she was like, they're simple myths, and I was like, oh, no, Mary, what are you doing? <laughs> Later in 1958, which was a decade before the 1967 referendum that saw over 90% of Australians vote in favour of amending two sections of the Australian Constitution that gave state governments control over Indigenous populations and finally counted Indigenous people in the census. Let's be clear. Yeah. The 1967 referendum results were the results of decades of Indigenous-led advocacy and protests. It didn't just kind of come out of it like, yay, white people suddenly. It wasn't Mary Gilmore, like, writing about how, yeah. Yeah. But in 1958, Mary Gilmore was using linguistic experts to put down notions that Indigenous people were, quote, primitive, end quote. She also wrote, quote, quote, the white man finds Greek hard to learn. The Aboriginal would find no difficulty in doing it. My father, who knew several Aboriginal dialects or languages, always compared the philosophy of the tribes with the Greek. End quote. The irony of Mary using Greek thought to advocate for Aboriginal people can't go unaddressed because Mary Gilmore probably wouldn't have let a Greek person into the country. So yeah, now
1: we're going to do a 360, 180 degree turn and write about her racism. So (laughs) that was already kind of racist, but this is a different flavour of advocating for the literal not letting people in. This is full racism. This isn't like, yeah... So in 1920, in the work at Mary wrote, and this is bad, by the way, this is real bad, quote, Australia is our country and we do not wish to see her forcibly married to any non-Christian, whether Mohammedan of Turkey or of India. The Mohammedan, let it be remembered, carries the Crescent from Japan to Turkey and Europe from the Levant to the end of end-to-end to end of Africa. The proclaimed line of defence of the white Christian policy lies along Canada, USA, Australia and New Zealand. These, with the exception of a partial voice in South Africa, mm. are the only nations that have spoken out on this question. These countries have declared the white man's flag.
0: I don't like that. If
1: you are speaking kindly of South Africa from 1935 to 1997, you're fucked up. I don't like that. So the only way she tried to sort of turn this around was later in the article. In the same article, she said this. Hannah, could you read this out for
0: me, please? But while we stand for our own, we need not decry other races. They have their rights as well as we ours. We have no right to encroach in an unfriendly and conquering manner on them any more than they on us. Nations should walk neighbourly side by side, each learning tolerance of the other. But the love of conquest still stands in the way of this. Hatred and intolerance bristle on every hand. End quote. That feels very... That's very, uh... Separate. I'm not racist, I just think we should stay where they are. Same, but separate.
1: Yeah, so it's one thing to say we should walk side by side. It doesn't stop the action being to slam the border shut and say, fuck off, I fall. Mm-hmm. Um, by the 1950s, Mary was writing to criticise the apartheid South African government, firing on anti-apartheid protesters and in support of those protesting apartheid in South Africa and people protesting in solidarity in Australia. But she also tied those shootings to capitalism Mm. as opposed to racism. That checks out. And I'm not saying there wasn't, like, greed involved in apartheid, Mm -hmm. but it's really fucking racist. Mm -hmm. It's literally about separating people
0: on the base of race. It's, like, it's so left in this period Mm. of, like, every problem is capitalism's problem. And let's not address any of the fact that there's other things going on. Yeah. Like... It's not that, it's this. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. No, Yes, capitalism is playing a role, but no, 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 no.
1: Right here, right out, this is racism. Yeah. Um, so it seems, with regard to her racial views, she sort of just got taken, overtaken by the post-World War II realities of a modernising Australia because the government invited Europeans in, populate or perish, because... We didn't want to be populated by Asian kind. Con- oh God! Why did I like pick this woman? Um, the point is because
0: our podcast is about making sure that it's not like women are all angels and can yeah. wrong. True, women are human. Women are complicated. Yeah, they just left out of the history, and that's why we're doing the podcast. That's true. I
1: think it's also like I feel like if it was one of the other, like she talked weirdly about indigenous people. It'd be fine by me to talk about more, or if you talked, it was really racist against. Mm-hmm. Other cultures that we be find because it's both. So, I honestly think she just sort of got swept aside by the post war realities of Australia.
0: It was, there was a lot of lot happening in that period. There was a lot going on. That's when my family arrived. Suck it, Mary. <laughs> All right. So, during the interwar period, which is between World War One and World War II, Mary continued writing for the Sydney Morning Herald as well as other union or communist publications. In 1931, actually, she became too radical for the Australian Workers' Union and began writing for the Tribune instead, which is the real big communist one. The big daddy communist newspaper. So, despite her pinko tendencies... The Lenin <laughs> of communist <laughs> So, despite her pinko tendencies, in 1937, Mary was made a dame, along with various other people, including Isaac Isaacs, he who's so good he was named twice, the Governor General... <laughs> The Governor-General. And also Edith Teshmaker anderson who stepped in as Governor of New South Wales when her husband, the Governor, took ill. And John Harris, who was a politician and member of the Australian Flying Corps. And was also the first person to produce Sherry in Australia. I don't think that's why he got the knighthood. It actually is why he got the knighthood. Because the
1: king at the time was Fraser. Moving on. Okay. Stage direction. Read out loud. Black screen with white text invoking Fraser intertitle card. We all know what happened after he captured the Sudetenland. Moving on. So, despite flaccid attempts at appeasement, in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland and Britain declared war on Germany. And Australia, a loyal dominion of the empire pledged itself to the fight to its last man and last shilling, which was the style at the time. Unfortunately, Australia had yet to realise that though it might think of itself as culturally British or European, it was smack bang (laughs) in the middle of Asia, Oceania, depending on how fancy you feel. And there'd been a war going on between the Imperial Fascist Japanese and the not-yet-People's Republic of China for many years before Hitler even thought about wandering over the border. Half of the Australian skilled troops were off in Europe and Africa fighting for the British,
0: but the Germans weren't the only fascists in town. Japanese Imperial troops began sweeping through Pacific Islands, seen by many Australians as the only protection between them and a Japanese invasion. So, to be clear, it's highly unlikely Japanese military were planning an actual invasion of Australia during the war because although Australia's population was small, I'm not reading this I think it's great! (laughs) Though Australia's population be little, the country be fiercely huge and relatively (laughs) impenetrable. Back then. Basically, it was going to be too hard for the Japanese to effectively launch an invasion. Yeah. So it's very unlikely that that would. Back to.
1: then, that a country would invade Australia.
0: Deserts to the north and the centre, and wilderness, like the Daintree rainforest and the lands of the Kuku Yalanji people. Um, which, fun fact, there is a vine in the Daintree called Wait a While. Because if you get caught in the vine, which has, like, spikes things. Uh it takes like seven years for it to come out and there is no way to get it out, so you have to wait a while for it to come out of your body. Um actual fun fact. That is that a fun is fucking fact. Dope as Kathy Freeman and Jess Naboy both have um, connections
1: to the cuckoo yelling people. Oh that's
0: amazing. Yeah. And um I also ate an ant in the Dane tree. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Was it yummy? It was. It tasted like lemon. All those factors going on, wilderness, desert, etc., uh, would serve as zones to slow down any theoretical large-scale invasion.
1: Uh, and the crocodiles. So if you need to lose an afternoon, look up the potentially untrue but still very interesting and horrific Ramry Island Crocodile Massacre. Excuse me,
0: I just have to No, like, it's fucked up, man. <laughs> Alright, that's my bedtime reading. But also, if
1: you were trying to invade, mount a land invasion from the water of Australia, you'd have to come down south because there would be crocodiles.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. When I went to the Dain tree week beforehand. Nah. Didn't nah. do it. Someone got eaten. Yeah, And then everyone was like, don't go swimming. And I'm like, I fucking know. Like, catch me, like, not going near the I'm water. I'm not an idiot. Okay. Yeah. Though there was actually, in
1: World War II, never any real threat of a Japanese invasion, many Australians felt it was inevitable. And modern thinkers now wonder if this fear of an invasion was an unconscious acknowledgement of Australia's own guilt as colonizers ourselves. 100%. 100%. This comes up in my thesis.
0: Alternatively... <laughs> People didn't have all the information that were crazy because they were yeah. really scared. There was a war going on. There's very much a, like a, there was very much a lot of racism involved in this fear. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, what if they bring delicious food? <laughs> During the war, Mary wrote publicly in favour of a Labour government and also many poems supporting the war effort. And one, Singapore, was centred in a 1941 edition of the Australian Women's Weekly. So this is the poem Singapore by Mary Gilmore. They grouped together about the chief, and each one looked at his mate, ashamed to think that Australian men should meet such a bitter fate. And black was the wrath in each hot heart and savage oath they swore, as they thought of how they had all been ditched by impregnable Singapore. In her vaunted place she squatted the sea on a base that was made of no bread. Her startled face looked up at the skies to the enemy planes overhead. Enemy planes, while ours were where? That cry we heard before. Our hearts were wrung as it rose this time from beleaguered Singapore. She brought forth death as her eldest child, with defeat as her second son. Then she hung a white flag out on a staff to show that her task was done. And sick with rage the Australians stood, and God how those Anzacs swore, Bennett and all his men alike, at the fall of Singapore. Whose was the fault she betrayed our troops? Whose was the fault she failed? Ask it of those who lowered the flag, that once to the mast was nailed. Tell them we'll raise it on Anzac soil, with hearts that are steeled to the core. We swear by our dead and captive sons, revenge for Singapore. That was really well read. Thank you. So, as you may have picked up. It's subtle. (laughs) It's subtle. Mary and many Aussies were not fans of the British actions that led to the fall of Singapore. It's a whole thing.
1: During the war, Mary also wrote her most famous poem. Well, is it famous if no one's ever heard of it? Mm. See, no. Wait, we should have your mom Because my parents knew I was researching this. My so no, I... mum doesn't know. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, there you go. No one fucking knows this poem. During the war, Mary wrote her most famous poem, lines of which are featured on the Australian Tenderla Note. No foe shall gather our harvest combines many themes of Mary's writing, combining an idealisation of colonial farming life with the modern fears of war, and she still includes women as bastions of nationhood. So I'm going to read it now. How do I say that word in the second line that begins with C?
0: Coo? Coo?
1: Ooh, that's getting to a cheese name. I don't think we'd have to say any more. All right. Sons of the mountains of Scotland, Welshmen of Coom and Defile, Breed of the Moors of England, Children of Erin's Green Isle, We stand foursquare to the tempest, Whatever the battering hail, No foe shall gather our harvest, Or sit on our stockyard rail. Our women shall walk in honour, Our children shall know no chain. This land that is ours forever, The invader shall strike at in vain. Anzac, Tobruk and Kokoda, Could ever the old blood fail? No foe shall gather our harvest Or sit on our stockyard rail. So hail fellow met we muster, And hail fellow met fall in, Wherever the guns may thunder Or the rocketing air may spin. Born of the soil and the whirlwind, Though death itself be the gale, no foe shall gather our harvest or sit on the stockyard rail. We are the sons of Australia, of the men who fashioned the land. We are the sons of the women who walked with them hand in hand. And we swear by the dead who bore us, by the heroes who blazed the trail, no foe shall gather our harvest or sit on our stockyard rail.
0: That's such a good example of like the Anzac mythology that came from... Anzac? Anzac, but also the colonial, drover, the Australian, Soldier. Australian manhood stuff, like, mm. Anzac was the end product of that early mythology, and then we had Anzac, and it's all about, like, the Australian manhood setting out on himself and yeah. working for himself, that's, like, combining the two. Mm.
1: I will say, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but we might have cut it out, and we've, <laughs> we've also done, like, 30 episodes, I can't remember, um... There was, oh, I think it was who's that guy who writes lots of books? Peter Sandling. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> that was too broad for me to know. I knew who I meant. Um, I think it was him. He talked about. It might have also been. Um... Anyway, there's this talk, This question of in World War One at least, because you have got these men coming from small towns where they do have to work in small tight units to do stuff like fight bushfires, short notice, big stakes. Mm-hmm. There is a chance that maybe more Australian soldiers, also by just sheer numbers, in terms of the men going over, there are more men from the bush going over than men from the UK, yeah. for example. You do have more men who are used to taking on at least small-scale leadership roles, mm-hmm. which does lead to that idea of Australians being more comfortable operating independently. Mm-hmm. But also, we, we look for that in the history, yeah. unconsciously and consciously. Does that make sense? Yes. So Isn't, we're more used to being they were, not we. Yeah. I'm not a male from 1912. <laughs> it's funny how we slip into we. They might actually have been better, at mm-hmm. least in some cases. And also just proportionally, there were less Australians, so more chance of these stories getting up mm-hmm. and being known. Like Mont St. Quentin, which is towards the end of the war, the platoons were left in charge of plant. It's like six to eight men. Mm-hmm. And they somehow took Mont St. Quentin. But granted, this is 1918 in Germany.
0: They're fighting 14-year-old boys. Yeah.
1: There's just so many aspects of it. you've got to, I think,
0: to also look at the convict history, too. Mm. Like, the majority, like, not the majority, but, like, a lot of white colonials in this time are coming from the convict era. And they're either descendants of convicts, they're past convicts. Or they're radical descendants as well. Because the reason the
1: secret belt was invented here (laughs) was because a bunch of people got kicked out of the UK. Ireland, specifically. Ireland, thank you. Um, (laughs) They got kicked out. So they came here and they could share those ideas more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Anyway, away from the men. God Hannah, you and bring up the bloody men in this feminist podcast.
0: <laughs> anyway, tut, tut. Let's talk about men. Slap on the wrist for Hannah. Nineteen forty five was a big year for Mary. She continued to write and publish despite being in her eighties. Her estranged husband died in February after a short illness. Also being in his eighties, he wasn't part of the second Australian Imperial Force. And it doesn't
1: seem to be that much of a shock that he died.
0: Yeah. Tragically, this was quickly followed up by the death of her son, William. It appears he either died of accidental consumption of poison or home-brewed alcohol. Yeah, so
1: all the reports I could find, I forgot to check the coroner's report. I don't even know if there is one. Mm-hmm. Um, he, In all the reports I saw, he drank a bottle of alcohol, became violently ill, and died. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like to me it could be a bunch of things. One, it could be a weird cover story that he killed himself. Yep. Um, he could have died of alcohol toxicity, like mm-hmm. um, maybe it was home-brewed and it was, like, messed up. Or he did just, or it was a batch issue. But the other interesting thing is, um, William Gilmore, her son, was kept alive for, by artificial respiration in 1945, which is very impressive, Damn. by the local doctor, Dr. Khan, perhaps giving his wife and child time to say goodbye to him. So I bet you don't mm. hate the white, bet
0: you don't love the white Australia policy right now, Mary mm. Gilmore. Hey, Mary. Hey. Mary Gilmore continued to write prolifically, both to other writers and constantly to the Sydney Morning Herald as both a journalist and in the letters to the editor page. Do you reckon they ever got sick of it? They're like, fucking Mary. Stop it. Mary also continued to write for the Tribune into the 1950s as Australia was swept up by anti-communist sentiment in the new Cold War context. Hannah, feel free to expand (laughs) here if you want. I mean... We kind of already did. We kind of already did. I can talk about it at length, but I don't think we need to. Alright. Were women communists more unfairly targeted than
1: male communists, or is that not really part of your research?
0: Not more unfairly targeted. Uh, Probably because they were also much less visible because, as we mentioned earlier, communists, gender roles, uh, women did all the tea making and were less visible, like, publicly. Agitators, like, they mm. weren't in the public eye as much as... It was the male union leaders, it was the male strikers, it was the male communists, it wasn't the women who were in public. So mm. they were still s- treated with a lot of suspicion. Um, as but it's well. more
1: like, you silly woman, what are you doing? A
0: bit Maybe? of that, yeah, like, there's, there's still, like, there's still bloody communist threads under the beds. You want to take over Australia and let Stalin in here. So, like, communists are so bad. Communists, fifth column, they want to, you know, subvert our democracy. They want to take over. They want to convert us. That is the thing that is running. So I can see that being like, that's why. It was because she was a communist and communists are evil. uh, 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 Literally twirling their moustaches.
1: Well, to be fair... They all tend to have lovely mustaches. Is
0: was, it was the era for mustaches. So Mary's last book was published in 1952. She did slow down in her later years, even as her poems, Lawson's poems and Patterson's poems, were used to begin the mythologization of pre-Federation Australia. Oh, there's that thing that I was just talking about. I, I think that did also was coming up. I think that also lends to why when I found out Banjo
1: Patterson served in World War I, I was like, no, he didn't. He <laughs> was dead. He died like a billion years ago. We do really
0: think of them as like Pre federation, yeah, and like not even like old and alive at, yeah. during the wars, like yeah. just like, like the clock ticked over to January first. I don't know they, did they dropped. Not 10. exist in the 1900s,
1: yeah, but like this woman lived more of her life in the 1900s yeah. than the 1800s. Well, almost in 1962, presumably very upset at the state of <laughs> affairs in Australia. <laughs> Hadn't Menzies just finished being prime minister by then? No, Menzies uh, was still in power for uh, a little bit longer. But yeah.
0: He's there for a long time. I know, like 19 years. Yeah, they just can't get rid of him. He's like syphilis. Daddy nodding
1: quietly. So in 1962, Mary died at the age of 97. Damn girl. Uh, Damn girl, she did well. That communism keeps you alive.
0: Racism keeps you alive.
1: (laughs) Hate does keep you chugging along. (laughs) There was a mass outpouring of grief across both New South Wales and Australia. She actually became the first writer since Henry Lawson in New South Wales to get a state funeral. Yeah, damn girl. That said, she's still an outlier in this regard. A recent study found that the vast majority mm. of state funerals and presumably territory fun- funerals in Australia are held for men. The original $10 Australian note, a polymer blue, used to have Francis Greenway in an architect, who was an architect and Henry Lawson on it, but in 1993 the note was reissued and now it's got Banjo Patterson on one side and Mary Gilmore on the other. There's also um, yeah, words from their most famous poems, The Man from Snowy River, is that his most famous poem? Yeah. And also on Mary Gilmore's side of the note, it's got um, "Our mouth, for shall gather our harvest." Like the last, the big, the, the famous lines. And there's a windmill um, on there too. I don't know if that's like a reference to something Are we Dutch. I don't know. That's what I was gonna say. I was like, don't make a joke about the Dutch, Nicola. <laughs> and then you fucking did it. Uh, and let's pause and let people shuffle through their bags to try and find a
0: ten dollar note to have a look. There's there's two problems with that. Yep. Um, one half our listeners don't come from Australia. Uh, two. No, <laughs> no one carries cash in I water. I have like a two dollar coin. I think that's it. Yeah. Anyway, well, Google it. Um, yes, Americans, that money is better than yours. Look, <laughs> if you can't accidentally melt your money because you put it in water, it's better. Like their paper money disintegrates if it you put it melt. in the machine machine. Sorry, melt, melt. Also, I believe the polymer plastic
1: banknote was an Australian invention, which is very, very cool. Oh, good CSIRO for us. CSIRO did it. Good for us. I know, right?
0: Oh, you've g- you've given a reason why there's a windmill oh, on the sorry. Note. Anyway.
1: <laughs> Um, so I would argue today Gilmore is largely forgotten by the vast majority of Australians. Mm-hmm. I could not have picked her out of a lineup a month ago mm-hmm. and um unfortunately Donald Trump read our Fur Shall Gather our No Gather our Harvest to oh, Scott God. Morrison. Really? At, like some dinner and it's like oh. fuck off Trump he can't even read for one thing. Oh. Just disgusting. So yeah, Scott Morrison is her great great nephew. There's like video of him visiting her grave and presumably shitting his pants. Um and it's She's just buried in
0: Ingadine Maccas?
1: Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I also love the journalist who made up that story. He was like, I made that story up, it was a joke. And everyone's like, did you know? <laughs> Um. So, like, I feel like most Australians would never have heard of her. Most of us couldn't name a poet outside of Banjo-Patterson, from Australia anyway. Mm-hmm. Um... And, like, if they know of her, it's more about the poems as opposed to the political radical behind the poems. And she was... Like, I was looking through a trope. There is so much stuff by... Like, I literally couldn't handle it. I was just, like, zooming into one year, mm-hmm. one newspaper, trying to find, like, something. Because this woman was... Prolific. Like, she was like a bloody Hamilton. She just wrote like she was running out of time. Why did she write like she was running out of time? The racism fuels you. <laughs> uh...
0: Yeah. Yeah, do you have any thoughts? Um about this not about like life in general oh no i never have any thoughts i enjoyed it was good i like the episodes where it's complicated where it's a woman that's complicated as right? avril Levine would
1: have put it yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah um because yeah otherwise it's e- like I, I always worry sometimes it's easy for us to accidentally go into girl, boss. Are girl boss mode yeah yeah where it's like that's not the case
1: this is why I really like Sarah Marshall's work on You're Wrong About, which is my favourite podcast and her writing. She mm-hmm. she was the one who like started off the Tonya Harding Renaissance and there was this woman in America who was sexually assaulted by a very famous pastor and um and you know, she spoke out against him eventually and um I'm misremembering the story. But um and now she's a massive Trump supporter. Mm. This woman who was yeah. sexually assaulted and spoke out on behalf of women. And Sarah Marshall was just like people contain multitudes. Yeah. And I always think about that and it's really difficult to talk about because you have to talk in circles so much to talk yeah, about. Yeah, you Yeah. Because you're like, this bit's good, this bit's bad, this bit's okay, this bit's ambivalent.
0: This bit's bad now, but good for its day. So yeah. we have to, like, acknowledge yeah. that fact. Yeah. yeah. It's very not straightforward. Yeah. It's like Josephine Baker being like, great for civil rights, but... Huh.
1: You- I'm bisexual, my gay son, I will never speak to you again. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, yeah. It's much easier for history to deal with complex men than it is to, for history to deal with complex women. Yeah. Because... It's the whole Madonna complex. Yeah. Like, you know, that women can either be perfect angels or harlots in the street I'm not laughing at you. You just... wearing pointy metal bras. <laughs> it
1: just fascinates me. This woman's been on her money and she was just this, like, absolute
0: nut job.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she was both the and, left like, and right wing of Australia through so much of its history. We
0: have, Do we have one more woman on our money? Is she the only woman on our no, money? No,
1: there's a woman on every single one. It's actually oh. more women on our money than men because the Queen's on the $5 note, but on the other side of the Parliament House. Oh. So every other note has yeah, a woman on it. Yeah, that's a fun fact.
0: Yeah. Because I was like, and she's the only woman on our No, nah, there's, um, there's... Either... As I said, I don't pay attention to our money. There's I don't have it. That's why. There's
1: David Unapon on the yep. 50. He was a famous Indigenous inventor. Yep. There's the guy who invented the flying doctors. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. In case you haven't heard about it, Australia has doctors that have wings and yep. we, they they fly. It's funny we've never made a soap about that. David Unupon,
1: um, Banjo Patterson, but there's um, Edith,
0: Mary Wright,
1: Ry- Edith Wright, Edith Cowan.
0: No, it wouldn't be. is it Edith Cowan? Um, she was. It's Edith Cowan. She was a politician. No, it's not Edith Cowan. She was like the first woman. In Parliament or something like that. You're the first woman in
1: Parliament. Oh yeah, and um, Dorothea Lyons was the first woman in the Senate, and she was related to the Prime Minister, married to the Prime Minister. It's Dame Nellie Melba, Edith Cowan, who was look at me go, a social reformer and the first woman in Parliament. Mary Rivey, who was a former convict who became a businesswoman. Um, Catherine Helen Spence, who was a suffragist, and she was Australia's first female, let me open the page up, first <laughs> female political candidate, mm-hmm. and she was called The Greatest Australian Woman by Miles Franklin. Um, and then there's Queen Elizabeth, who we all know who that is.
0: It is it is fascinating that a communist is on some of our money. Yeah. Particularly, I especially because I, I, I look at a period of very intense anti-communism.
1: Yeah, and they but, slept it was 1993 by then. Yeah. Paul Keating was Prime Minister by then. Mm, Mm, And I'm not saying he had any influence over it, but he Mm. was very big on holding a national identity away from the imperial uh, identity. Paul
0: Keating being Prime Minister at the time reflects attitudes of the nation at the time. Yeah. So, like, he was elected by majority. That's how it works.
1: Anyway, sorry for that brief diversion. So, speaking of complex women,
0: Hannah... I am very beautiful. You this, are very beautiful. The script says I have to say this. You are beautiful. So it's, it's true. Uh, we have a website, mm-hmm. womenofwarpod.com. We have social media, we have Instagram, we have Twitter, we have Facebook, all Women of Warpod. Mm-hmm. Um, we're mostly active on Twitter. <laughs>
1: um, so speaking of all these complex people, uh, we wanted to go out today focusing on the good parts of Gilmore's legacy. What is a legacy? It's planning. Anyway, um, not the bad stuff or her descendants. So we're going to close out today by reading her poem, The Waradjuri Tribe, which spoke of the suffering of Indigenous people in Australia and, I would argue, attended to humanise them to a population not ready yet to consider their evil treatment of their fellow human beings. For more on that, tune
0: in next week.
1: Oh, uh, and like, next time I'm doing a war poet, I'm going to do an Indigenous war poet who did useful stuff during the war, and I wonder if one of them exists <laughs> and was held hostage on a plane by Palestinian activists or That's something. It's very
0: specific. Is it? Yeah. I knew
1: none a call of any such like that. Get out of my house. <laughs> okay. Get out. So in this poem, Mary speaks of cranes, the birds, which, held a really, which still hold a really good deal of significance to the Wiradjuri people. So this is her poem, The Wiradjuri Tribe. Harried we were and spent, broken and falling, ere as the cranes we went, crying and calling. Summer shall see the bird backward returning, never shall they be heard, those who went yearning. Emptied of us the land, ghostly our going. Fallen like spears, the hand dropped in the throwing. We are the lost who went like the cranes, crying, hunted, lonely, and spent, broken, and dying. What a fucking note to
0: go out on! <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Thanks, see you. We'll see. The... You. We'll see you next time. See you in a fortnight. With ha- more um, uplifting content. If you see Hannah at the AHA,
1: please say hi to her. <laughs> I think she would just really hate that. <laughs> i.e. she loves the sunburnt country. Oh, are just going to check the Anzac book now? I'm
0: just seeing if this is the one I have. I don't think so. No, this is World War
1: II. No, I have the Anzac book. I literally just couldn't be bothered opening it. I have
0: the
1: World War II one. Oh. The Anzac book two, <laughs> electric boogaloo. I have Australia in Palestine. I would rather be
0: taken by a shark than a crocodile. Yeah. yeah. Crocodile- crocodiles fuck you up for the fun of it. Know, she says saying. having fun with a crocodile. The- <laughs>